Our text today comes from Matthew chapter 3, continuing our study in Matthew's gospel. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you that you would guide us into truth today, that you would be merciful to us and deliver us from error, that you would deliver us from all distraction, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock, and our nearest kinsmen. Amen. Amen. Anton Chekhov was a prolific 19th century writer of short stories and plays, one of the most influential of his time, certainly the most influential Russian writer of the 19th century. I don't think he was great as a man or as a human being, but he certainly was extremely influential and prolific in his, in his writing. He's famous for one bit of advice that he gave to playwrights and to storytellers. He said this, if in the first act you have hung a pistol on the wall, then in the following act it should be fired. Otherwise, don't put it there. And what he meant by that is that make details matter. If you're telling a story and you're including details, only include details within a story or a play that's gonna contribute to the overall narrative. Uh, extraneous or frivolous details that don't pay off by the last act or the final chapter. It's like making false promises to your audience. Now, if you're a lover of good storytelling, you have likely been frustrated by bad stories that leave loose threads dangling. They introduce characters that don't have anything to do, that don't go anywhere. They don't do anything to help the story. Some, some television shows that just go on and on and on, they're often guilty of this. They'll, they'll introduce plot points that don't ever resolve and then they just hope that you forget them at some point, I guess. But the best stories, don't do that. Every detail, every theme, every symbol, every character matters. And the way to enjoy great stories is to pay attention to the details. Don't ignore the details. If a skilled storyteller is putting something in the story, a pistol on the wall, that pistol's there for a reason. It's going to be fired. It's going to mean something. Well, the Holy Spirit is the great master storyteller. 
It's through his inspiration that many men over many centuries wrote these 66 books that make up the Bible. And though these texts that we have in this wonderful book, the Bible, have many sources, the Holy Spirit is the editor-in-chief. He has superintended this whole project, and he has weaved throughout the Bible this perfect, cohesive narrative with these texts that intertwine beautifully. They speak to each other. They inform each other. One narrative will shed light on another narrative. If you're a fan of a great series of books or, or a series of movies, it seems like every movie that's made now has to be part of some cinematic universe. No movie can stand alone anymore. And if you enjoy that kind of thing, and if you enjoy long story arcs, it's so much fun when this movie over here has a reference to that movie over there that you saw 10 years ago with that character, and you think, oh, look, that's a little nod to the fans. Oh, that's a little continuity. This, this continuity is so much fun. Well, these modern storytellers won't hold a candle. They can't hold a candle to the Holy Spirit who did this for millennia. So, for example, when you see Jesus meet a woman by the well, you've seen that before. Where have you seen that? Where have you seen men meeting women at a well? And what do those stories mean? And what does that have to do with Jesus who meets a woman at a well? The details matter. When you see Jesus in a boat, in a storm, on the water... Uh, what is that? What is going on there? You see St. Paul later. You see uh, the Apostle Paul on, uh, in a boat, in a storm, on the water. And those stories should cause you to remember another Old Testament narrative about someone in a storm, in a boat, on the water. Where have we seen this before? What does this mean? And how do these stories connect? What, how, how do they inform each other and help us to understand what's going on? So faithful readers of the scriptures don't skip the details. The Holy Spirit is a master storyteller, and he loads the Bible with all of these details that we are supposed to pick up on, recognize, and meditate on. And, and so when we come to this text today, we see Matthew introducing us to, the, to, to John the Baptist. Matthew freights this account with imagery, with symbol, with themes from the Hebrew scriptures. Not just so that we say, oh, wow, look, continuity. Oh, look, it's a reference. Ha ha, neat. That's not the point of this. It is neat. I think it is neat. It's really neat. But it's so that we understand who John is. Where does he fit in the story? What is his job? What is he doing? In this short chapter, just 17 verses, look at all the references that, that, that uh, just, just boil to the surface. We have a wilderness, and you think, wilderness, wow, that has a lot of, of, of meaning and, and purpose in history, in Israel's history. We have a man dressed in hair and leather. We have locusts, we have honey, we have water. Specifically, we have the Jordan River. We have vipers, fruits, stones, trees, fire, a threshing floor, wheat and chaff, the heavens above, and a dove. Uh, there are at least as many Old Testament references in this chapter as there are verses, and we're not going to be able to explore every single one of them today. And it is loaded with these symbols. John the Baptist himself is a walking symbol. He is a loud, bold embodiment of judgment and exile. You look at John, and you see this is where Israel is at this point in history. Just look at him. So for example, if, if you were to see somebody with a red baseball cap, jean shorts, an NRA t-shirt, they've got a uh, American flag tied around their neck as a, as a cape, you could probably 
guess two or three of their political positions, I, I, I would guess. I mean, you just assume one or two things that they believe, and you probably would agree with maybe a handful of them. If you saw someone, for example, with purple hair and several facial piercings recording a TikTok video of them screaming alone in their car uh, <laughs> without speaking to them, without even talking to them, I wager that you could probably figure out what they think about pronouns, for example. Maybe, maybe not, maybe not. Don't judge a book by its cover, but usually the uniform tells you what the person is all about. Well, John the Baptist comes decked in a uniform that openly indicates who he is and what he is there to do. The prophet Malachi told us to look for somebody like this. At the very end of the Old Testament, last verses of the Old Testament, last words of the Old Testament are, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of Yahweh. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The last words out of God's mouth at the end of the Old Testament is look for Elijah. Look for Elijah. He's coming before the kingdom. He is coming as the herald of the kingdom. And even Matthew here quotes the prophet Isaiah, who says there is someone coming who's going to be crying in the wilderness, who is going to prepare the way of the Lord, who is going to make his paths straight. So look for this individual. Someone is coming as the herald of Messiah. Well, John appears in Matthew chapter 3. He is that Elijah that Malachi told us to look for. And he looks, he looks like Elijah. That's his uniform. Both Elijah and John the Baptist are hairy men. John the Baptist might have been a Nazarite. Um, we're told that, uh, and so he didn't cut his hair. Elijah is called a lord of hair or a master of hair. Uh, somebody exclaims about how hairy he is. Who, who's that hairy prophet? Uh, both Elijah and John the Baptist wear leather belts. The Holy Spirit inspired this detail with a leather belt around his waist. Well, um, a trademark of Elijah was that he had a leather belt. You might think, what's the big deal about a leather belt? I wear a leather belt. What's the deal? Well, um, it wasn't a linen belt like the priests would wear. It wasn't a, um, a, a metal or gold or silver girdle like a soldier would wear. It's a strip of hide tied around his waist to hold his clothes together. He's wearing rugged clothes. He's not wearing fine clothes. He's not dressed like a prince. He's not dressed like a lord. He's dressed uh, like a commoner, like a peasant. <clears throat> Both Elijah and John the Baptist uh, are outsiders. They do their work in the wilderness. We studied Elijah several weeks ago, and you remember that Elijah wandered deliberately in the wilderness. Well, John the Baptist is out there in the wilderness. Both Elijah and John are calling men to repentance. They both serve under wicked, idolatrous kings. Elijah served under Ahab. John the Baptist is under Herod. Both of them are prophets of judgment, foretelling the end of a world. Elijah talked about the end of the house of Ahab, the fall of Ahab's kingdom. John the Baptist stands at the end of, a, of another world, the end of the old world of the old covenant. Uh, John is proclaiming the, the coming day of the Lord and the rushing in of the new world, of the new kingdom. And so John, by, by every metric, is the Elijah that we were supposed to be looking for. But John adds to this. There's more, just so that you don't miss the point of who he is and what he's doing. Uh, John embodies all of Israel, the, the, the place of Israel, not only in his appearance, but in his activity. 
the arena of John's work is the wilderness. That's where he is. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in town. He's out, way out, side the city. He's in the wilderness, and he's eating only things that you can pick up off the ground. He's not eating things that you grow. He's not eating things that you cultivate because he's not stable in one place. He's a wanderer. Uh, so he eats, he eats locusts, which... In God's law are clean. If you want to eat locusts, you can eat locusts. Nobody's going to tell you not to. As unappetizing as that sounds, they are kosher. You can have a locust if you want to eat a locust. Some people who have eaten them say they taste like shrimp. Some people who've eaten them say they taste like sunflower seeds. You're welcome to try them out and report back to me and let me know what they taste like. It might be one of those things that tastes like whatever you put on them, right? You put them on ranch, they taste like ranch. They're just a vehicle for ranch which is what most things are. Um, but we read about locusts eating things more than we read about locusts being eaten in the Bible. Locusts are instruments of God's judgment. Locusts um, are, are, are eaters, they're devourers. The words plague and locust go together. If I were to say, finish the sentence, there was a plague of, you say locusts, because that, those things go together. We think of the Exodus, we think of the prophet Joel, uh, swarms of locusts march across the land, devouring everything. And when they come, they're warnings to God's people of the swarming, invading, devouring armies of Gentile nations that sweep across the land. So John appears in Israel 400 years after, uh, there, there's been four centuries of plunder, of oppression. Israel has been in exile all this time. They have not been enjoying the blessings of the land. They are wanderers. They have been trampled under by swarms of Gentiles. And now John comes and he eats the eater. He devours the destroyer. He eats the locust. He eats the instrument of judgment, which is a hopeful image. You know, um, God gives... Ezekiel, interesting foods to eat as a prophetic sign to Israel. Jeremiah acts out these interesting things as a sign to Israel. Now, John the Baptist comes and he eats, deliberately eats locusts, which is a hopeful image that someone's going to remove the curse. Someone's going to destroy the destroyer. Somebody's going to eat the eater and restore to us the years that the locusts have eaten. Along with that, um, uh, John eats wild honey. The land of Israel is known as the land flowing with milk and honey. If you're eating the honey, you're enjoying the good of the land, the sweetness, the Sabbath rest of fellowship with God. And here John eats honey, but it's wild honey. It's not cultivated beekeeper honey. It's honey that you find out in the wilderness, like the manna, which is said to have tasted like honey. You didn't, you didn't grow manna. You didn't uh, cultivate it. You just went outside and you picked it up. Uh, but manna was a, a, just a little hint. The sweetness of the manna was just a little smack, just a little taste of the full enjoyment of the promised land later to come. We have several in the scriptures who eat honey, who bring us rest, who bring us deliverance. Samson ate honey. Uh, Jonathan, the son of Saul, ate honey in a significant scene uh, in, a, in a great deliverance that John, J Jonathan helped work out. Jesus, um, after the resurrection, eats honey and, uh, 
and broiled fish, but Jesus eats honey because he's gonna lead us into the rest and peace of the promised land. And so now John the Baptist shows us he's eating honey. He's just a foretaste of the rest and peace to come. So John is out here eating symbolic things, wearing symbolic things, inviting Israel to leave the land. Come outside the city, come join me out here because I want you to recognize that you're in exile. You've been devoured by the locusts. See the reality of the situation you're in. Come out here, be reshaped, be reformed by me. Get out of the land. Let's cross the Jordan River even. Let's, let's roll all the way back to the beginning of our history so that we can go back in the land together so that we can conquer the land afresh so that we can see the Lord roll back the curse, the plague, and we'll get to rest in the land and enjoy the sweetness with Messiah. The first message that we find John preaching is a message of repentance. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is repentance? I never wanna assume that we use words all the time and I, I, I don't ever wanna assume that you just know what that means because I think I'd wager that for some people, when I say repentance, you think repentance is feeling bad, or you think repentance is feeling sorry, or regret, or remorse. We've sinned, and now we feel bad about it. We feel sad. But that's not repentance. Sorrow, godly sorrow, can lead to repentance, but repentance itself is a very joyful thing. Repentance is turning from thoughts and habits that God has forbidden, it's a forsaking, repentance is a forsaking of behaviors that break God's perfect law. It's confessing those things, yeah, I did them, and calling them what God calls them, naming those sins so that they can be rejected, so that we can hate what God hates and love what God loves, so we can be godly, so we can be like God and walk away from those things. Repentance is turning from sin and siding with God against our sin. We take up God's, um, uh, his agenda against our own sin. That's what repentance is, which is refreshing. It is happy. It is a life-giving thing. We don't begin worship on the Lord's Day with a confession of sin because we want everybody to get into a room and start off feeling really miserable. You know, that's my agenda here. I just want you to feel really, really miserable, just really sad and really sorry. No, that's not, that's, <laughs> repentance is not feeling miserable. Uh, I want you to know the forgiveness of God and to be happy, to rejoice, to know that Jesus has paid for your sin. He has taken the penalty for your sin. Be cleansed, trust him, and obey him. Do what he says and go and bear fruit. That's a happy thing. Repentance is a happy, joyful thing. And notice in John's message to these people, he doesn't say, repent, and if enough of you get your hearts right, the kingdom is coming. No, he doesn't say that. Your repentance doesn't bring in the kingdom. No, the kingdom is coming, John says. The kingdom is coming. It's barreling down the tracks like a freight train. It's coming whether you're ready for it or not. However, get ready for it. Repent so that you're ready for it, so that you're on the right side when the kingdom gets here. And so John has a very uh, sharp uh, a very bold message. Again, he's so much like Elijah. Elijah didn't pull any punches. Elijah said whatever 
came to his mind almost. It seems like the guy didn't have a filter at all. And John the Baptist says exactly what uh, these people need to hear. In verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. I mean, that's a, not a church growth strategy at all. I don't know why you would do that. But he greets them. Hi, welcome to church, you brood of vipers. Who warned you? Who told you to come here? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Don't think to yourselves that we're children of Abraham. Don't say that. God can make these stones into children of Abraham. He calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees both uh, a brood of vipers, baby, baby snakes is what he's calling them. Uh, they're children of their father, the devil. They're seed of the serpent. Matthew lumps them all together in his account here, making no distinction. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a lot of nuances. They had a lot of differences. They would not like to be lumped together. They would say, oh, I'm not like that guy at all. And the other guy would say, I don't have anything in common with him. Um, that's like saying, you know, uh, the Pope and his followers and Joel Osteen and his followers all came together and they all got called the same name. Uh, they would say, no, we're different. But yet, um, they're all part of the same problem. And I think that's probably accurate as well. Uh, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees are all part of the same problem. They've all got the same problem. And John calls all of them to repentance. He says to all of them, I'm not making any distinctions here. I know you've got your little arguments and your little infighting and your inside stuff. I don't care. I'm calling all of you to turn away from your self-destructive idolatry and live again as God's holy people. Get ready to let go of the old world. Get ready to enter the new creation that Messiah is bringing with him. Uh, John says the Messiah is coming to baptize with fire. He's going to clean out his threshing floor. Well, what threshing floor? What important Jewish structure was built on a threshing floor? If you know your history, that's the temple. The temple was built on a threshing floor, and Jesus is going to come and clear out that floor, that threshing floor. He's going to tear it down. He's going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire within a generation. And if you're going to survive what's coming, you must get on board with the new kingdom, the new creation. And in order to prepare people for Messiah, in order to smooth out the highway for the coming of the king, to lift up the valleys, to bring the hills down low, to straighten all the crooked places, John the Baptist is out here inviting these spiritual refugees out of the old creation, out of the old Israel. Come out here, come out. Come out to the river, come outside the city, be cleansed by water at this specific river so that we can go back in. Now this river is the Jordan. Throughout the history of Israel, the Jordan River stood as a major point of transition. It was a barrier, it was a point of change and transformation. Uh, most significantly, after 40 years of wandering, when Israel comes into the land of Canaan to conquer it, they come across from east to west, they come across the Jordan River. They could have taken a direct route. There was a more direct route from Sinai. If you ever looked at a Bible map, you know what I'm talking about. You look at the, um, the Sinai Peninsula and you see that they could have come straight up from the south, but they didn't. They deliberately go all the way around to come in from the east side of the, of the Jordan River. They come into the land of promise from the same direction that Abraham entered it. Abraham comes into the land of promise and he goes around building altars, little sanctuaries, little places of worship to preach 
to the Canaanite people, of course, they ignore his message. They go around and they stop up all the wells and they knock down all the altars and Isaac has to go and try to rebuild them, but they're not ready. They don't hear. But Abraham's work in the land of promise was a precursor to the conquest that was to come. So Abraham crosses the Jordan River. Then Joshua, 400 years later, crosses the Jordan River. Joshua sets up two piles of rocks, one in the river, one on the side of the river, to, to remind them of the miraculous way that God brought them through the river into the land. And so from that time forward, the river is the gateway to the land. Once again, when Elijah comes, the land has been turned back over to the Canaanite idols. The land is under the Canaanite gods. So we need a new conquest. How are we going to do this? Well, Elijah's got to go back across the river. He anoints Elisha, his servant, his student, and Elisha re-enters the land. Elijah's taken up in the glory cloud. Elisha re-enters the land. Elisha comes in as the new conqueror, a new Joshua. It's like we're starting all over again on a new mission, once again, like Abraham, like Joshua. Now Elisha's coming in to subdue the land under the worship of Yahweh. And so here at the beginning of the gospel, in the beginning of the story of Jesus, we find that John is at the River Jordan once again, bringing people through the same water. You may have heard it said that, Jordan, um, uh, that, that Joshua was at the Jordan River because obviously he needed a lot of water to baptize that many people. That's sort of missing the point. There were lots of other rivers. If you were looking for a lot of water, there lots of rivers that you could uh, use. In fact, the Jordan River is 30 miles from Jerusalem. It's not the most convenient body of water uh, to use for this activity. John is at the Jordan River for a specific purpose. He's there because once again, the land is defiled, it's under idolaters, it's ruled by idols, and now the people must come out of the land be washed in the river in order to go re-enter it as new conquerors. Come out and go back, go back in, start over. So what's interesting about John's baptism and what's new about it, what's odd even, is not that it was a ritual involving water. You might think, oh, well, John is here doing something with water that's never been done before in all of biblical history. Well, that's not true at all. There are baptisms throughout the New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Testament. There are baptisms throughout the Old Testament. There are many purifications and washing rituals, and the book of Hebrews calls those, it just lumps them all together and calls them baptisms. All these washings are baptisms. Baptism is not a new thing. It isn't odd even that John is presiding over them as if he doesn't have authority to do this. No, um, John is the son of a priest. Remember Ze Zechariah? Uh, he's a priest. John is the son of a priest, and so he's a Levite, and doing these cleansings are well within his jurisdiction. He has the authority to do this. What does make John's baptism remarkable, what does make it so different, is that number one, he's doing it away from the temple. If you want cleansing, if you want washing, if you want purification, ordinarily, you would have to go to the temple to get it. John is pulling way outside the temple and saying, if you want cleansing and restoration to God, you're not gonna find it over there anymore. We gotta come out here. We're just gonna do something new. We're gonna do it outside the ritual system of the old covenant, which is passing away. And uh, it's corrupted, and God is judging that. Cleansing isn't in, that, in there anymore. Cleansing is out here with me and with the new covenant people. And number two, the, the other thing that's odd about John's baptism, uh, in addition to it not being in the temple, the other thing that's odd 
is that almost all of the washings and cleansing of the, of the Old Testament, almost all the purifications are self-purifications. You remember famously Naaman, the Syrian, baptizes himself. You wash yourself if you're unclean. Nobody does it for you. The one standout exception, the one time that somebody baptizes someone else in the Old Testament is when Moses baptizes Aaron and his sons when they're being ordained to the priesthood. And that was back in Leviticus 8. You can look that up um, at some point. Uh, Moses baptizes Aaron's, Aaron and his sons as their ordination to the priesthood. And so John is doing that very same thing. He's outside the city, out in the wilderness, calling people to come to be washed like the priests were washed. Uh, and it could be seen and understood by everybody that John is out in the wilderness ordaining priests. John isn't doing anything sly or under the table. All of these actions are bold demonstrations of what the... The, the new creation, the new kingdom that Jesus is bringing in, that's just what it's going to be like. In the church, we're going to see the reality of what Israel was always supposed to be. Israel was always supposed to be a kingdom of priests, and now the church is going to see the reality of that, the fulfillment of that. At the heart of it, John is ordaining priests, new priests of the new covenant. John's baptism is not Christian Trinitarian baptism at first, not until Jesus shows up. Uh, John doesn't baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What John is doing is an old covenant ordination ritual with a twist. The twist is it's not at the temple. Uh, the twist is I'm doing it here with you and, and for you. And when Matthew's gospel introduces us to John, he's out in the wilderness He's dressed like Elijah. He, he's eating things that remind us of wilderness and exile. He's at the Jordan River. He's ordaining priests out of old Israel. And he's, he's out there calling people to repentance. Then one day, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit show up at the Jordan River. Let's read um, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." When Jesus comes, he comes as a new Joshua. He comes as a new Elisha. Just as Moses passed the mantle to Joshua on the other side of the Jordan River, just as Elijah anointed Elisha on the other side of the Jordan River, so John the Baptist now anoints Jesus to go in into the land as the greater Elisha, as the greater Joshua, as the greater Abraham, to go in and conquer the land. Um, John the Baptist has already confessed, even before Jesus gets there, John says, you know, I'm not worthy to carry the sandals of Messiah. Whenever he shows up, I, I just, I have nothing but worship for him. John the Baptist already leapt in the womb of his mother in Luke's gospel. That's already, that's already happened. And so he finds himself, John finds himself in the odd position of being the one asked to baptize Jesus. And John immediately protests. He says, no, wait, that's not right. That's backwards. 
I'm not the master. You're not the servant. I'm not Moses to your Joshua. I'm not Elijah to your Elisha. That doesn't work for me at all. I'm not ordaining you. I'm not cleansing you. I need you to ordain me. I need you to cleanse me. I'm the servant. We got all this upside down. I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. But then Jesus answers that objection. He says, John, permit it to be so now for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says, no, 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 this is right. This is the right way to do it. This is the way it's supposed to be. These are the first words of Jesus in the New Testament. At the very beginning of his ministry, uh, Jesus says this, and it reminds us of another conversation that Jesus is gonna have at the end of his ministry, on his last night with the apostles. Remember when they're in the upper room after supper, Jesus girds up his robe, he takes a wash bowl and a bowl of water, and he starts to wash the apostles' feet. And when he gets to Peter, Peter says, Lord, are you washing my feet? Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. You're not gonna do this. I gotta wash your feet. And Jesus answered, Peter, listen to me. If I don't do this for you, you have no part of me. You have to let me serve you, Peter. You have to close your mouth. Shut up, Peter, quiet. You gotta let me serve you. You gotta let me do this for you. This is the only way to be saved. This is the only way to be cleansed. You don't cleanse me. I cleanse you. Put down your pride and your false humility, Peter. And Peter understands and says, oh, Lord, then not my feet only, but I need to be washed all over. I need a total cleansing. I need my head and my hands and everything cleansed. Well, what's the point there? It's both at the beginning and the end of Jesus's public ministry. Jesus has these bookend conversations that teach us from start to finish that Jesus came to be the servant. Jesus comes to serve his people, not to be served himself. Uh, Jesus came to serve and we cannot serve him. We have no part in him. We can't do anything for him unless he first serves us. He will not be served by us first until he has rolled up his sleeves and worked for us, which means that at no point of your life, at no part in your walk with the Lord, in no part since you've ever been on this earth, have you ever initiated anything with Jesus. He has beat you to the punch every single time. He has worked for you. He has served you first, which means, again, at no time have you ever earned his love. Have you ever earned his favor? You have never worked for his love. You have never deserved his salvation. You have never initiated and worked in such a way that his love for you is a payback. It doesn't work that way. Every work we have ever done for him and in his name is just a response to the work that he has done for us. Just as the Lord told David, David said, okay, Lord, I'm gonna build you a house. And John, uh, 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 Jesus says, I'm sorry, the Lord says, no, David, no, first, I'm gonna build you a house. Sit down, big boy. I'm gonna build you a house, and then you can build me a house later. In fact, your son's gonna build me a house, but I'm going to establish you first. I'm gonna build your house. Every time, he beats us to the punch. And so when Jesus comes, yes, I'm in the form of the servant. You baptize me. Uh, this is how it goes. And so these bookends with John the Baptist and Peter show us that Jesus has no problem being the servant. He has no problem submitting himself to the baptism of John. In Luke's gospel, it even appears that Jesus waited in line until everybody else was baptized before he even approached John. Everything he does in the gospels from beginning to end is to serve his people. 
And what he does, what Jesus does, he does for us and he does with us. So anytime you see Jesus serving or working or doing or saying something in the gospels, you know that he's doing it in our place. He's, he's paving the way. He's blazing the trail. He's doing it so that we can do it, so that we can respond, so that we can follow his example. We're united to him in such a way that his life is our life. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. His ascension is our ascension. That's the way that we're united to him. So everything he does is for us and with us, including our baptism. We are baptized with him and into him. His baptism is ours, and they're connected. Galatians 3.27, Romans 6.3, both say we're baptized into, into Christ. So now at the Jordan River, with the whole Trinity present, the baptism of Jesus is the first new covenant baptism. It's the first Christian baptism, as well as Jesus's ordination as priest. There's so many details here that point us back to um, Leviticus 8 and Aaron's ordination. Let me just quickly hit a couple of them. When Moses baptized Aaron and his sons, the Lord spoke, and he said uh, that his will be done. He approved. He, he uh, announced his pleasure over Moses' actions here uh, with John and Jesus. The Father speaks from heaven again. He is well pleased. Moses poured oil on Aaron's head. Oil has always been a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And here the Spirit himself shows up in the form of a dove hovering over the waters of baptism, just as the Spirit hovered over the waters of creation, moving things from disorder to order, just as the dove hovered over the waters after the flood that Noah sent the dove out of, out of the ark. Peter tells us specifically that the flood was a baptism, a type of baptism. So here at the Jordan River, we have water, spirit, dove, which means that we've got a new creation. A new creation is happening. This new world that John told us about is being realized. Uh, now, of course, Jesus didn't need to be baptized because he was a sinner and he wasn't in need of repentance. He tells John, you need to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. This is Jesus' first public step in his earthly ministry. He's 30. He's at the age for the ordination of priests. It's time to go to work as the new great high priest to offer the sacrifice that's gonna bring down the old creation and usher in the new. Now, as I said, if Jesus and his people are connected, if everything he does is with us and for us and we are in him, we're united to him, then what does Jesus' baptism mean for us? We understand what his life does for us. We understand what his crucifixion and his death and his resurrection does for us, his ascension. But what is his baptism? If everything is for us, what does baptism mean for you and me since we're united to him? First of all, it means that just as Jesus is ordained as a priest in his baptism, so are we. We are ordained as priests. This, this is the doctrine, we all know this. This is the priesthood of all believers. And that the, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers doesn't just mean that we can talk to the Lord anytime we want to. It does mean that, and we must, and we should talk to him all the time. The priesthood of all believers, uh, the teaching doesn't just mean that we can read the Bible for ourselves. It does mean that, and we must and should read the Bible for ourselves, but it's broader than that. What are priests? Priests serve the Lord in worship. They guard, they protect holy things. They guard the sanctuary. They lead other people into worship, 
Priests were God's appointed servants tasked to assist worshipers to draw near to Yahweh. The priests know the rules. They know what pleases the Lord. They know the order and the ritual. They know how it's done so that they could then preside over the sacrifices with the worshiper to make sure things were done in a way that pleases the Lord. Priests worship for themselves at the sanctuary for sure, but they're also there for others. They are there to assist others. They're there on behalf of others. So as priests, you and I, worship on behalf of a world which presently doesn't want to worship the Lord. We stand before God as intermediaries. We lead the world in worship. We teach the world how to worship God, how to put away your idols, how to stop the blasphemy, how to renew covenant, how to rejoice in Jesus on the great feast days, how to rejoice in Jesus with your whole life how to order your life by God's law. This is all the work of priests, and this is all the work that you are called to. In your baptism, you were united to Jesus, and you were united to his baptism, which was a priestly ordination. So you are ordained as a priest, therefore you are ordained to serve and assist each other in worship and assist the world in worship, to lead the world in worship. That's the first thing. Jesus' baptism means for us is that we are priests under him. Secondly, just as Jesus was filled with the Spirit at his baptism, as the Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism, so we are also ordinarily baptized by the Spirit in our baptisms. I stress the word ordinarily. Um, you could always think of a desert island situation where somebody doesn't have a church or you know they find the scriptures and they repent and they are united to the Lord by faith and God gives them his spirit and even the thief on the cross wasn't baptized so we know he had God's spirit. But I'm saying ordinarily, um, the, the point is, is that we, aren't, um, we don't become Christians, we don't trust God by, by faith, united to Jesus by faith, are baptized and then wait 20 years for a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, a second anointing or a second blessing somewhere down the road. Ordinarily, these aren't separate events. There is one Lord, one faith, one Baptism. Paul um, uh, indicates this. He alludes to this in Second uh, Corinthians chapter uh, chapter one. Paul says, "Now he who established us with you in Christ and has anointed us—that's that priestly language. The one who has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee." This sealing, this anointing, ordinarily, is the, uh, the joining to the Holy Spirit. It's, it's joining in and, and living in the life of the Trinity. Of course, the Apostle Peter says it so clear on the day of Pentecost. He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, well, if you wait 20 years and get super spiritual, then you might receive the Holy Spirit. What this means is, among all other things, that you are, as a baptized Christian, you are brought into the fellowship of the Trinity. Jesus' baptism was uh, the first Trinitarian Christian baptism, and when you are baptized in the name of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there and are with you, and you're brought into the fellowship of the triune God, and God is pleased and delighted. The gift of the Holy Spirit is imparted to you when you are united to Christ, and the Spirit guides you into truth. You're convicted of sin. You're matured and sanctified. You're his new creation. He hovers over you 
like he hovered over the first creation. He moves you from disorder to order. You're one of the new race of people, the new truly human people, the new creation spirit-filled people. The life of the spirit flows out from you to the whole world. Out of you flow rivers of living water. And so what we see happening in Jesus' baptism is that the whole Trinity is there to publicly indicate their pleasure on him and on his life. The spirit descends upon him and he does on us as well. So you're ordained as a priest. You're brought into the fellowship of the Trinity, having been baptized in the spirit. And then thirdly, what the father says of Jesus at his baptism, he says of we who are baptized. Just as the father, and this is so critical, if you fall asleep or tune me out, I want you to tune me back in for three more minutes. What Jesus says of, uh, I'm sorry, what the father says of Jesus at his baptism, he says of you. We who are baptized are well-pleasing to the father. We who are united to Christ, we who are Christians are well-pleasing to the Father. The Father was well-pleased with his Son. We are in him, and so he is pleased with us in him, which means that God the Father doesn't just put up with us. He doesn't just tolerate us. You may be struggling with sin, and you may be super disappointed in your failures. You may be stuck in life and you just don't feel like you can move forward. You may believe that you are always messing up and therefore not deserving of any attention from God the Father. Well, you're true. That's right. You don't deserve anything, but you still have it. And he is still pleased with you. You might think, though, because of your frustrations with yourself, because of your sin, you think God is always aggravated at me. God is just absolutely disgusted by me. I, I, I can't even cry out to him. I can't even pray to him because he's so angry with me. We don't have a relationship. We don't have any fellowship because we're just so far apart. And you need to hear that what the father says to Jesus is what he says to all who are in his son. You, Paul says in Ephesians, you are accepted in the beloved. You're accepted because of the work of Jesus. He is satisfied with you. And he delights to call you his own. Even when it looks like everything is falling to pieces and even when you're super upset with yourself and you're disgusted with yourself, it doesn't mean that you've been abandoned by God or forgotten by him. That's what the accuser wants you to believe. That's what the devil wants you to believe. But that is a lie. Child of God, listen to the words of the father to the son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you are in Christ, if you are in fellowship with him, united to him, he is well pleased with you. Be encouraged. Don't let your heart fail over. Don't despair over your failures. Repent, be restored. Quickly restore fellowship, renew covenant, but don't despair. Right at, we'll, we'll get into this next week, but after Jesus' baptism, he immediately goes in the wilderness to fast for 40 days. He's, to be, he's gonna be tempted by Satan. Jesus doesn't go there because all of a sudden the father changed his mind. The father changed his estimation of Jesus. Um, and so he sends him out to the wilderness to be tempted. No, even though Jesus' life was full of temptation and suffering, Jesus did not go an instant outside of the pleasure of the Father. The pains and the setbacks and the torments and the temptations that Jesus experienced were not signs that the Father was done with him. 
neither are your setbacks and frustrations and temptations. It's a sign that he is wrestling with you and sanctifying you. Jesus, and this is amazing, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was perfected through suffering. He grew through suffering. And so it is for us. The fact that we have these temptations and torments and setbacks and pains are indicative that he is wrestling with you. Psalm 38 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Deliverance comes in many forms, but the fact remains that you are beloved. The father is well pleased with his son, and if you're united to his son, the father is well pleased with you. You have been pulled out of Adam's covenant headship. You have been pulled out of the old creation. You have passed through the waters. Now you can go back in as a conqueror with Jesus, in Jesus, accepted in the beloved. That's what Jesus' baptism means for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this incredible gift of fellowship with your son. We thank you that you have accepted us in him. Now strengthen us with this faith. Give us this confidence and give us your Holy Spirit every day. Fill us, we pray. Uh, give us words to speak. We speak life uh, where, where we can speak joy and thanksgiving, gratitude every day. Father, we pray for these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.